0: Forever, Dog. I'm gonna hurt my baby. to Hi, writers, panel listeners, and other listeners. Um, this is an unusual thing we're going to do today. Um, I had this notion, listen, if you listen to the writer's panel, you, like me, uh, like to know how the sausage is made. You like to know how the stuff that you put in your eyes and ears uh, is made. That is really why I started doing the podcast. Um, and so this thing that I hit on is sort of an extension of that Um I, always, I often say when I bring people to do the podcast uh, that the listeners are usually uh, will would-be writers. Oftentimes, they are professional writers or, or one step away from it. Uh, but there's another segment of listenership who are the kind of people who listen to uh, DVD commentaries. They're the people who love the extras on DVDs, uh, and we miss those. Um So this is the sort of thing that is for those people who are me, who I hope are you. Does this make sense? Look, it's the day before Thanksgiving. We're recording this. Uh, I'm tired. I'm working a lot. We're all happy for the break. So enjoy the break while you listen to this. So what I'm going to do, as you may have heard, and I'm sorry to keep talking about it, uh, I have this new comic book called Hex Wives. Number one came out on Halloween from Vertigo, DC Vertigo Comics. And um, the reception was awesome. So thanks to everyone who picked it up. I really appreciate that. Um, Number two will be released on the 28th of November. That's any day now. Um, And I had the notion that it might be interesting to people who like comics and storytelling and, I don't know, horror stuff, or who just like to know how stuff is made to do a commentary track for a comic book. As far as I know, this is a thing that doesn't exist, which seems crazy to me. So uh, I ran this by uh, old Brett, here at Forever Dog. And <laughs> he's very young, he's, he's youthful. Um, and Brett said, that sounds fine, it's your fucking podcast feed, put what you want on it. <laughs> which was probably a mistake, I think we can all agree. Um, and then I thought, gosh, You know, I don't know that this exists. I wish it did exist. I read so many comics. I bet there are other writers who would love to do commentary tracks for their comics. So I reached out to some friends and some associates uh, in the comics world. And overwhelmingly, people thought this was real fun. So I accidentally started a new podcast. Sorry? And you're welcome. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to put out the first few of these here on the writer's panel feed um, but I know how much you writers, panel listeners, well, the ones who love to comment on iTunes and hit me on Twitter. I know how much you hate anything that isn't the usual thing. Um, one star, you say. I used to like this before it became about witches. <laughs> Listen, let let us indulge. This is a free podcast. <laughs> Allow me to indulge myself once in a while. Anyway, I'm going to put out... Um, some of these commentary tracks here on the writers panel feed but starting hopefully in January we're going to move this over to its own feed we'll call it comic book commentary or something look I thought of this yesterday (laughs) and I'm making up the rules as I go along but uh I've already reached out to a bunch of comics writers and have like January and February all booked up uh, assuming people actually record them um Like a couple of the Vertigo pals, Brian Hill, who has American Carnage out this month, Zoe Quinn, who has uh, Goddess Mode out next month, Um, folks who are not Vertigo, um, Teenie Howard and um, Sean Lewis and Caitlin Yarsky, his uh, artists, are going to do it together. Their book, Coyotes, is awesome. It's out from Image. So uh, this could be cool. Um, I hope people will listen to it. I will give a heads up on here on the writer's panel feed when – we start putting it on the other feed, whatever we wind up calling it. Hey, do you have a good name for it? I think comic book commentary is good. What do you think? Tell me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. Before you do that, go to your local comic shop, pick up issue one of Hexwives. It is written by me. It is drawn by Mirka Andolfo. It is colored by Marissa Louise. Um, We're very happy with this book. And um, like all commentary tracks... You probably want to have read the book before listening to this. Um, I'm gonna go, I'm just going to go through the book and see what happens. Uh, the, the big question I get, I'm not going to go into where this came from. Uh, I feel like I've talked about that a lot. Like, If you're on Twitter, if you follow me on Twitter, you've seen me post and repost um, interviews I've done around when Hexwides came out last month. Uh, So I talk a lot about where the ideas came from and all of that and working with Mirka and stuff like that. Um, I'd rather this commentary be sort of a a deep dive, like a page by page thing, because there's stuff in here that was really fun for me to throw in. There's stuff in here that I thought was interesting. There's stuff that Mirka and Marissa brought to it and uh, editor Molly Mahan and uh, Maggie Howell brought to it that I really want to talk about. Um, So we'll go through that. But if you're interested in, like, the origin stuff, go find those interviews on, like, um, comicbook.com and Sci-Fi Fangirls and Sci-Fi Wire did a really nice interview and article. They've been really amazingly supportive of the book, which is awesome. Something I have been asked quite a bit is about the timeline for the book, which is interesting to me. Just the, the nuts and bolts, like, how does a comic get made? And I don't think Hexwives was particularly unusual, Um, but I I did go through emails before sitting down today to sort of give you an idea of how this book came together. So let me run through that briefly, then we'll get into the book itself. Um, As I said, the book came out on Halloween. Issue one came out on Halloween. It was announced in June of this year. Um, My first meeting with DC was back in September of 2017. My writing partner, Ben Acker, and I went in and uh, chatted with Jamie Rich, uh, who was then overseeing Vertigo, and Mark Doyle, who was about to be overseeing Vertigo, and Jamie moved over to the Bat Books. So we sat down with Mark and Jamie, and we were just sort of, you know, having a general chat. We liked them. We knew them a little bit um, about some other stuff, mostly uh, DC Characters that they were starting to do do new things with. I know we pitched a Swamp Thing book, we pitched um, a, a Starman book, which those are two of my favorite characters. They were not interested in either of those. Um, but so we met like uh, we met on September twelfth, and I bumped into Jamie somewhere, and I mentioned to him, I, you know, we have this other idea that we didn't send you. It's a thing I've been kicking around in my brain for years, and it could work for an existing character. At DC at the time, I was thinking of a character called the Mod Witch, which was, um, I think, a 60s and 70s character. And I can't remember the books that she appeared in, but it was weird books like um, The Unexpected or something like that. And she had been brought back for uh, in Neil Gaiman's Sandman run, but she hadn't really been around for about 20 years. But I said, you know, this is something we could apply to this character. And I sent Jamie the pitch. This was on the 13th of October, so a month after I met with him. And he got back to me the next week saying, we love this idea. We're really excited about it. Let's jettison the existing characters and make it a Vertigo book. And we didn't know at the time that they were relaunching Vertigo. So he sent me this sort of sheet that they have that you fill in, like, who are the characters? Why do you want to tell this story? Uh, Where do you see it going? Stuff like that. Uh, I did that, returned it to him on the 20th of October. And then... uh, on the 30th, so almost a year before the book came out, he said, we love this in-house. He talked to Doyle about it. He talked to Maggie, who at the time um, was about to be bumped up, I think, to more uh, a higher uh, editor level. Uh, and he said, we really love this. We're going to show it to our bosses at the next all-hands meeting. He also said, and I was calling it at the time American Witch because uh, I loved the book American Vampire uh, that Scott Snyder was doing. And I thought, well, this, this could sort of go hand in hand. That was a Vertigo book, too. Um, I said it could sort of go—it could be in the same area. You know, to me, at the time especially, the book was about um, I rot at the core of America. I don't know why that was on my mind, but it was. Um, so he said, we really like this. Uh, and he said, and I quote, we have a title that we hate that we love. Uh, what do you think of Hex Wives? And I thought I do not like that one bit. <laughs> uh, it it was so it felt so gimmicky to me. It felt so kind of shallow to me. Um, I didn't have a better title though. Uh, that said, I think around this time my wife and I went out of town and we were throwing ideas around. And she was, I will say, my greatest collaborator for like the first three months of this book as i was putting ideas together she was very patient and listened to me throw stuff at her and gave me a lot of great feedback so thank you julie um some other titles we threw around though were cast away which i kind of like right get it it's a pun also cast away i don't know i feel like if i get to keep making this book i'm going to name a uh Story arc castaway, because I do think it's a fun title. Um, uh, yes, we had some other things like that, including another one I really like Spells Trouble. That's great. That's a good title. Uh, and then one that did not take, but I really love Wands Across America. <laughs> it is, it's almost not a pun, like it's a visual pun, <laughs> but I think it's really funny uh, Wands Across America. That's a great one. Uh, I think Julie came up with that. Uh, all right. Anyway, so it was on the 30th uh, that Jamie and, and Mark said, we're going to, we, here's the title, Hex Wives, what do you think? I said, I'm going to have to think about it. And uh, they said, all right, we're going to go and get. Uh, at our, talk about it at our next meeting. Uh, in early November, uh, November 3rd, they got approval from Dan DiDio, who greenlit it. Um, but they then had to go to their big bosses, which was supposed to be the next week and get the final approval. Uh, that meeting was supposed to be on the 13th. It was then postponed. <laughs> so I'm sitting there like for a month going, Oh my God, do I get to make this thing that i I love so much. I've been thinking about it for years. In the meantime, I'd had a conversation with Acker who said, listen, I think you should spread your wings on this. You really seem to know what it is. So Godspeed, uh, go ahead and do it. Um, he was he was so nice to do that because I think it is something that I really needed creatively. So it was about a month. Uh, it wasn't until December 13th that the book got approved. They sent me a really nice note. Um, at the same time, they said, we're going to reach out to Mirka Andolfo to see um, if she wants to be the artist on it. They had worked with her on a couple of other books, and they really liked her work, as did I. Um And then on the 19th of December, right before the holidays, I sat down, I went into the D.C. offices, which luckily are right here in Los Angeles, so I get to go in and bother them all the time. Um, I say, if you have notes for me, you give them to my face. And I'll tell you what, that does not cut down on the number of notes they give. Um, So on the 19th of December, I went in to meet with Mark Doyle. Uh, Molly Mahan and Maggie Howell. Uh, It was the first time meeting uh, Maggie and Molly and they were awesome and uh, we were sort of off and running from there. In January, they asked for an outline for the first arc, sort of a a Bible, um, as well as character descriptions so they could get Mirka rolling on that stuff. Um, I gave them that outline and then at the end of January, I went in to uh, re-break that outline. This was where working with a partner for 15 years hadn't <laughs> sort of made me lazy uh, as far as, you know, breaking something on my own. And, you know, I, I did this outline, which I was pretty happy with for six issue, first arc, uh, which is what they recommended. Um, in my work for Marvel, we had generally done five issues, 20 pages each. Vertigo is a little bigger. They want to do six issues, 22 pages each. And that really made a difference in the storytelling. It It felt like an unnatural fit to tell a story. And so we had to sort of work that out. So end of January, I went in to re-break the story with Molly and Maggie, and they proved themselves to be incredible collaborators. Uh, we started getting sketches from Mirka in February. Um, we locked down Joelle Jones to do the cover for the first issue by the end of February. Sometime in January, I gave them a scripture issue one. And I think we wound up doing... Um, six drafts or so of the first issue script uh, and it is in part because you know art was coming in so we'd chain stuff around it was also in part because we made an error very early on in I th- it was something in the translation from script to pencils that all of us missed and I'll talk about that when I go through the issue um, but basically we were off by a page and we wound up having to solve that problem very late in the process not till June. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about because uh, I'm working on some TV and movie stuff now, and naming characters is always so hard for me. I sit down and I'm like, when I start something, I'm like, what are people named? And and Acker and I were actually just talking about this last night because we're but we're each working on uh, drafts of a new of new projects and. Uh, he said, like, he'll dig in and look for word origins and stuff like that, and then form a name out of that. And I said, I go on and look up what, is the, what are the most popular names in 1975? And I'll pick something from around, you know, somewhere in the 80s. So it's not the most popular, but it would be a, an average person's name then. Um, Hexwives was a little different because these are basically immortal characters. And I knew that pretty early on. Um, And so a lot of the characters were already named. Their names came very early. Uh, They came just in that outline stage. Um, Like our version of Sabrina is named Demina, And Molly and I went back and forth about that. I was looking at some old emails saying like, that's a little on the nose, right? Also, are we going to get in trouble for that? And she said, no, no, I think it's actually kind of fun. Uh, She was like, I can't find that, that name existing anywhere. But who cares? It's It's... It's a cool name and, you know, it works for the character. Um, Nadia was always Nadia. Uh, Becky was always Becky. I think because she was... Ba- well, here's another trick I do for naming. is I based Becky on uh, Gabourey Sidibe's character from American Horror Story Coven. And then I think I went in to IMDb and looked for other characters that Gabourey had played and I named her Rebecca based on another character, or something like that. That is something I will frequently do, um, and so that's where Becky came from. Nadia is named Nadia, and I will tell you this: when I put this in the Bible, I said, "Please don't tell anyone this because it's embarrassing." But I'll tell you, dear listener, um, Nadia—the voice of Nadia—is based on—is based on, I have to look up. Is based on uh, the actual person Nadia Hussein, who won the Great British Bake Off. Uh, who I find absolutely charming. Uh, The look is a little bit based on her, too. I had sent stuff uh, to Mirko when we were doing character design, but certainly the voice is based on her. Nadia was so charming and so warm uh, on Bake Off, and then she hosts this other show, like the Big Big British Family Dinner or something like that. Um, and so she's in every episode. So, like, I was watching that stuff trying to nail down Nadia's voice and behavior because I really, I love that character. It's not a mistake uh, that Nadia in Hexwives is a baker. Um, We went back and forth a lot on Izzy's name, uh, our main character. Um, She, we wanted something cool. I was calling her Paisley for a while, which is not a good name, but I knew someone, I know someone named Paisley. I was like, oh, that's a good name for a character. Uh, But when it was decided that they were immortal, um, it didn't seem timeless enough. And I knew that she was uh, Spanish and Italian. Uh, So we wanted something that reflected that. So we threw around a lot of names for that. Um, And I think I have emails from uh, Molly um, so she did look, I'll, I'll just backtrack for a second. Uh, Molly did look up Damina and wrote to me saying, Donna means lady, though it's Italian if we wanted to give that name to Paisley. It's a name that would fit for the time period the men create as well. It would work for Damina or Paisley. Um, some version of Catherine might work. It means pure, though she does talk to cats. Oh, sorry, that's a spoiler. You'll find out. I think we mentioned it early on. Um And it's related to Hecate. We wound up staying with uh, Domino for that one. And then for Paisley, we threw around a lot of names, um, starting with Valentina um, and then Helena or Elena. And Helena, we liked that it could be shortened to hell. That was very appealing. But it also ran into trouble at DC because the character of the Huntress is named Helena. Um, Molly said, I'd avoid Hela since it's a Nordic goddess name and a character who's had quite the resurgence thanks to Thor Ragnarok, which I hadn't seen at the time. Um, Helena is an Italian name, and then, like I said, we had wound up avoiding it because of the Huntress. Uh, we talked about Juliana, Jules, Julie, all related to Julius Caesar, if we ever wanted to go way back in the storytelling for where her people came from, which I think is a great idea. Um, Molly is a real history nerd. She loves Greek and Roman stuff. Uh, very early on she sent me at the end of an email she says by the way i've been reading the odyssey this week but once i finish i'll be hopping into the poetic edda which is basically the bible for nordic pagans and heathens so we can really dig into the mythology of these ladies pumped to which i responded i watched bewitched yesterday (laughs) she's so much smarter and better at this than i am um Anyway, so we, I don't remember how we wound up with Isadora. I do know it was a process of, like, yelling names at my wife and, and saying, like, does this work? Does this work? Um, and what I wound up saying about Isadora, um, I, I, once, I, once I hit on it, I knew that that was the name. And I wrote to Molly, Isadora is the answer. I like it a lot. It comes from the Greek. Is, I-S, is a terrific statement of being. Izzy is both a cool name and a statement of disbelief. For example, Izzy. And it has the Dora ending, which it has sort of the witch tra- uh, tradition, like Glendora, like Nymphadora Tonks. Uh, and then Isa, I-S-A, is a great cliffhanger of a statement for the book uh, that the book will explore. Isa as in, is a witch? So overthinking it, 100%. Uh, but I think we, we you know, sometimes it takes that long journey to get there. Uh, and just to wrap up this timeline stuff, uh, at the end of February, Marissa Louise came on as the colorist, which I was absolutely thrilled about. Um, I knew her work from a whole bunch of things, um, including a dynamite book, uh, Flash Gordon, that Acker and I had done, though he had worked with her much more directly than I had. Um, but I saw her book. Uh, I saw her colors over Mirka's pencils on the Shade the Changing Girl annual and like, the two of them together are an incredible team, and, and I knew that they would make this great. Okay, that's a lot of talking. Let's get into this book. Um, I have nothing to say about the cover except that once we got Joelle Jones for the cover, we were like, oh, let her do whatever she wants. Um, my initial idea for the cover, and I think it would have sold more copies, is was to do like a play on the Bewitched uh, poster where it's uh, the cartoon witch sitting on a broom um, looking adorable Um, Except in our version, she would have had like a severed head in her hand. (laughs) Um, Joelle did not do that. Joelle did a close-up in part because Joelle was doing a witch book herself, or at least a magic book. And our main character looked a little bit like her main character. So she wanted to do this very close character study. uh, And I think she came out with an absolutely beautiful cover. Um, It's the, the regular cover. The other one... The variant cover is by Jenny Friesen, who I don't know, um, and was sort of like, I didn't vote on that cover. I love Jenny's work. Um, I only saw it when it was totally done, and I'm so knocked out by it. It's when I went and did a signing at Golden Apple, uh, everybody was grabbing up Jenny's cover. Uh, It was really cool. Um, All right, page one. This is going to be long. (laughs) Uh, Page one uh, when I went to film school, I didn't go to film school. I took film classes uh, at Syracuse University before I transferred out of that school. And I took a great screenwriting class where in which one of the assignments was to start with a close-up. Um, and to me, uh, in this book, I knew that water was going to be a running motif, uh, as were some other visual elements. Uh, mirrors is another visual element that we'll uh, come back to again and again. Uh, so is fire. So I knew this was going to be water. I love the idea of starting not with our main character, not through her eyes, but through Nadia's eyes, the woman she loves. Um, it was important to me very early on to establish that this is at heart a love story. Uh, this is the story of Izzy and Nadia, who are basically immortal, who keep finding each other through every lifetime they have. Um And it's only when we get halfway through the book do we see them really torn apart. And so the rest of the series, the next hundred issues, is going to be about how do we get them back together. Um, I went back and forth a lot. So we start in Salem, Massachusetts. It seems like the best place to start in 1692. uh, When I was a high school teacher, I taught The Crucible several times, and I felt like I had a good handle on that material. Um, I went back and forth a lot about Where to begin this book, Uh, whether we start with the women already brainwashed and living these suburban lives, or whether we give a backstory and give you context for them. Um, I pitched very early on, I think after one of those first meetings with Vertigo, doing like, why don't we do a free comic book day book, which is like 10 pages and it just tells you the history of this coven and their ongoing battle with the architects. And that was, I don't think I ever got a response on it. So I assume we didn't do it. Um, But without doing that, I felt like we needed to see these women at their most powerful. Um, We needed to see what they're capable of before we see how their power was taken away from them. Um, I'm still not sure it's the right choice. I love the art in this. I love the color in it. I think it's totally beautiful. Um, But I wonder what the effect would have been if we had started with them as suburban housewives and then slowly unfolded, which is the way I prefer to to experience a story. Uh, And I think if we got to do, say, the TV show for this and we should do the TV show for this. Anyone listening? Let's do it. Um, I think the way to start would be with them. Already as housewives and then do that slow unfolding like Rosemary's baby. Something is weird going on here because um, that was always the the hook of the book. Anyway, that is not how we decide to start. Um, and And so we start seeing the witches throughout history. And I think it was a good way to establish who they are, establish the relationships with each other and with the architects who are constantly trying to kill them because they're so threatened by them. Um, the language in these, especially these first couple scenes, the uh, Salem scene, and then the Revolutionary War scene. Um, the I didn't want to fully commit to doing uh, sort of Puritan language, um, so it's it's. I feel like it's sort of splitting the difference. Um, we went back and forth quite a bit uh, about the way the women would talk both in these flashbacks and then in the current day, uh, and I can talk about that later. Um, The you came from me, I told you I would line is not just to establish that these two are together, but to establish the nature of their relationship, which is that um, Izzy sees herself as a protector. She's always going to take care of Nadia. She's always going to protect Nadia. And Nadia, for her part, is always going to emotionally take care of Izzy, who can tend to be very closed off or towards sort of lean towards the harder emotions. Um, I, the only thing I, I, the two things I want to call attention to in this last panel on the first page are Becky says, Isadora, these goat nobbers again. And goat nobbers took us a long time to get to. I originally had her calling the guys shitheads. Because I just thought it was really funny for this Puritan witch to be like, "Oh, these shitheads again," um, but eventually, ultimately, Molly said, "What if we do something a little more uh, of the time?" Um, and so it was a lot of poking around, and then you know, doing things to goats was a big insult in the fifteenth, in the sixteenth century, or the sixteen hundreds. Um, so that we sort of drew it from that, and then the other one. Uh, is Izzy is saying, you must be japing my ass, which again, splitting the difference uh, between contemporary language and and this uh, sort of langu- language of the time. But uh, there was a series of videos about this guy who was like a tourist, and he would go around. I wish I could find these. I will try to put it on my uh, Twitter when we put this episode out. But he would go around and look at these monuments and stuff and go, you got to be joking my ass. And it Cracked me up so much. This was like a thing that went around a year ago for three days, and I could not get enough of it, uh, and so it made its way into this book. Um, the dialogue from the Puritans on this first page, by the way, is stuff we added way late in the game. Uh, drown, hang, stone, burn. They keep saving one another, so it's for not For the good of man, we must try. It's a little on the nose, um, but I think it really, especially on the first page, is stuff you want to get across. Um, second page, uh, we get to see Becky using her powers, which again, this is part of the initial design, um, of these characters. I didn't want them. I didn't want magic to be the answer for everything. So the idea of giving them all sort of low level powers, which is something that the narration explains later. Um, but each of them has a specialty power, for lack of a better word, and Becky's is fire. We don't necessarily know that on this second page, but we see her using it. And then later in the book, when her lighter goes up, uh, it's sort of a callback to that. Um, we also start the narration on this page. The narration is the, the equivalent of voiceover, um, by, and it's being done by Aaron Gabriel. We don't know that yet. Although, because I put it in question marks, we do know that it's voiceover and not just an omniscient narrator. Um, Originally, this narration started a few pages later, and it came very late because I had to add a lot more information. Uh, I would give the book to friends of mine. I had a couple of really great early readers, Uh, Ryder Strong, who I'm sure you know is an actor and a director, but is also a terrific writer uh, and a real comic book fan. I gave the book to Ryder and I said, what I really want are your questions. What do you think this book is about? But really, what questions do you have um, and what kinds of questions are they? And he told me what he thought the book was about and he was really wrong. And I thought, oh, shit, I need to make some things much, much clearer. Um, and so I had to add a bunch of narration and that pushed all the narration forward and um, You know, Aaron's first line, they have us by the balls, and it's our own fault. You know, all of the narration from him was meant to be very masculine, using very masculine language. Um, You know, I always wanted his line, kill the witches, to take place when one of the witches was being killed or attempted to be killed. That it landed on Becky being shot was really nice. Um, I'm on page three now, and we look at uh, this line... Go savagely, Rebecca, and remember us. It, it, look, I'm going to point out things I'm proud of. Uh, go savagely is not something I've ever heard before, and it surprises me because you often hear when someone is dying and it's you know has Shakespearean overtones, go softly, right? Uh, these witches don't want that. They have violence in their blood, and so they don't want to go softly. They want to go sa- savagely. Uh, and then... Um, Izzy's line, we'll find you, find thee again in thy next vessel, should it wake, is sort of setting the groundwork for how their reincarnation works. And again, I won't go into it, but it's that's a, a thing I had to really spend a lot of time figuring out. Um, we went through a bunch of versions of how that might work. Like, could anyone be a witch? And then you commune with the devil and you are awakened by it. Communing with the devil was always part of it. Um, and it's something I get to explore in issues seven and beyond. So hopefully you'll stick with the book that long. Um, I absolutely love the way that Mirka drew Izzy in the second panel of page three. But for now, bloody, repri- re- bloody reprisal. Um, and then we get a bunch of uh, crucible references. Um, I danced with Abigail Williams and Salem Wood. I, I read to Martha Corey from The Unholy Book. Um, And then, of course, the last one is not from The Crucible, Uh, although Judge Stoughton is a character from The Crucible. Is he saying, I, Judge Stoughton, please thy wife as thee could not. And here I had to cut a joke, which was my favorite joke in the whole book, (laughs) but it broke up up the reading of these panels because they were already pretty busy because we had to move the narration forward. But after she says, I please thy wife as thee could not, you hear Nadia say from off panel, hey, and then Izzy says, it meant nothing, Nadia, I swear. Um, I gave the, the book to my friend Jen Carroll, uh, who you've heard us talk about on the writer's panel. Uh, she works for Vince Gilligan, and that was Jen's favorite line. So, Jen, I'm sorry I had to cut that. If, if I give you a copy of the book, I'll draw it back in myself. Um, and then, of course, the final panel uh, is Izzy telling the judge, tell thy captain when they see him in hell when next you come for me, you'd best bring a battalion, of course, setting up the next page where they literally have a battalion. Um, I want to go back one second on, on page three to talk about um, <laughs> to talk about what Mirka did on this page, which these four middle panels are so dark and so violent. The uh, fourth panel on the page where Izzy is ripping a guy's head off, when I got that in Pencils, we couldn't tell what it was because it was so shadowed and stuff. And we're like, listen, Mirka's amazing. I assume she knows what she's doing. It's going to be great. Uh, And then we got it and it is so (laughs) disturbing and incredible. We love it so much. Um, And also the hatchet in the head. She had another version of that, which uh, if I forget to do it, Someone listening to this, please remind me. I will put up the sketch, uh, Mirka sketch, on Twitter when we put this episode out. All right. Then we're in Pauling, New York, 1777. We're on page four now. Um, and here I wanted to give Izzy and Nadia a quiet moment. I wanted to reaffirm that 100 years have passed. They may not be there in their same bodies. We, I don't know if they died in the interim, um, but they very much are together. I chose Pauling, New York because it's where uh, my friend lives. Uh, There's no other significance than that. It's where my friend lives, and there was some revolutionary (laughs) battle fought there. Um, And this is where we get to—oh, and we make the play on words of I Knew You'd Come For Me, uh, a callback to the previous, which was very romantic. This one's very sexy. Um, The second panel, You Know I Could Drown In Your Eyes, is a direct homage to Hamilton. I'm not proud. I'll steal from everybody. Uh, it also is going it also is a callback to that very first panel where we see Nadia's eyes and she is literally being drowned. Um, <clears throat> it's also something that's going to, it's an idea that's going to re- reoccur in the book. Um, there are men outside who want us dead, there always are. Uh, and then, again, this is just sort of a way to establish that how they how their magic works. They use blood magic, they have to shed blood. It gives them their power uh, with Izzy because her power, is uh, for a, capac- a capacity for violence beyond her physical limitation. She, uh, the more, more blood she spills, the, the stronger she gets. I will say, originally in this, um, Izzy put on a shirt in panel three of page four, um, and it was Mirka's idea to keep her without a shirt. Mirka, uh, very early on, told me she likes to draw sexy ladies. And I said, okay, this isn't really that kind of book. Um, I was very worried about being exploitative or, you know, drawing characters who, who were too attractive. And so I asked, you know, we had a lot of back and forths between me and Molly and Mirka and tried to dirty up the characters a little bit, try to messy them up. But ultimately, um, they're just attractive. Like Mirka just draws attractive people. And why should we not let her do that? Because she does it so well. She also draws an attractive horse. I'm on page five now looking at this bottom panel. That horse is really attractive. Um, So we explain the uh, magic, how the magic works here. And then I also, it was important to me because it's narration and not just captions that, and this was something I I did have a little back and forth with the editors on, that Aaron says it's so fucked up, right? She has a capacity for violence beyond any physical location. It's so fucked up. Um, felt it had to feel very contemporary to me because it does take place. His, his talking takes place in the real world right now. Now, turn the page, uh, and you get this beautiful splash page, which is the barn burning in the background, uh, Izzy riding off on her horse, looking very, <laughs> very angry, which is how she usually looks, and Nadia walking off on her horse. This page was the last thing drawn because... It wasn't until June when the book was being put together. Usually you get sketches sort of piecemeal and then you get inks piecemeal. Um, and the book isn't really put together, all put all together until a few weeks before it goes to print. And when that happened, um, we realized that we were thrown off by a page. So we had to add a page. And the only place it made sense to add a page was right here. Um, I think the pitch for the idea came from Molly. She said, what if we have – instead of trying to insert a new scene here, what if we have them writing off um, and and Mirka can draw this beautiful thing? And then Marissa colored it just in an incredible way. Um, it became one of my favorite pages in here. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk when we get to it about the other page we had to add because when we added this page, it threw off all the numbering. Um, the way that comics work is each of your odd – Pages should have a tiny cliffhanger at the end of it so that people are compelled to turn the page. Um, Odd pages are on the right side of the book. So when we inserted this page, it threw all the pages off. So the odds became evens and everything was in the wrong place after I had so carefully planned it over six drafts. Um, Okay, then we're in South Pass City, Wyoming, 1873 which this is a direct reference to the Boom comic that Acker and uh, Andrew Miller and I wrote uh, last year called Death Be Damned, which takes place in the same place, South Pass City, Wyoming, because I wanted to imply that supernatural things happen here all the time. (laughs) Um, There's not a whole lot to say here, except I love Westerns, and I would love to do more Western stuff. Nobody wants Westerns, unfortunately, Um, but I'll say this off topic for a second. Uh, this book is called Hex Wives. I came around on that title. Spoiler. Um, Acker and I just wrote a book for um, Marvel called Weapon Hex. It only seems right that I do a Jonah Hex book to complete the trilogy. If you want a Jonah Hex book, I have a great idea for one. I'm talking to DC about it, but show them that you want a Jonah Hex book. So tag Jonah Hex and me and DC and tell them you want this. Just demand it. And tell me what artists should do it. Anyway. Um, so I love Western stuff. The, the name of this character, uh, the architect who comes to shoot them down, uh, who's a little bit racist, by the way. You can tell because he says Chinese laundry. Um, his name is Ugly Cowboy, and I think Mirka did an amazing job making him ugly. Uh, I also love the way that color works in general in this book, but specifically I love what Marissa did to convey uh, that magic is being used uh, I had put in the script, uh, looking at panel four on this page, that, you know, we see Izzy bite her lip to draw blood in the panel, in panel three, and then she's shooting in panel four, and she's using magic to both be faster and have better aim than the ugly cowboy. And Marissa, um, both Mirka and Marissa, drew the magic coming from the gun, and I think it just looks so cool. It's the kind of thing that, like, I feel like you can only do in comics. It would look sort of silly to do it uh, in any kind of uh, movie or TV uh, medium. Uh, anyway, this is also where we introduce the character of June, uh, who's part of the coven. We don't know a lot about her at this time, but we do see that she is doing this sort of fortune telling, and that's, uh, that's her power. That's something she can do. Um, the narration on this page was... I think also came fairly late um, because the, qu- the other question I kept getting and, and was having conversations with Molly about was why the men are doing what they're doing. How do they justify their actions? Do they just want women dead? And th- the men have to be justified, right? They can't think that they're the bad guys is what it comes down to. Right. No villain ever thinks that he's the villain. He thinks he's the hero. These guys think the women are too powerful, so we have to kill them. Um, And so the narration at this point is sort of getting to that. It's our uh, it's their responsibility to restore order. Uh, Order, they think, is not having these powerful women running around. Um, We also establish here that there are 100 witches. And look, if we get 100 issues, we're going to meet all of them. Uh, We then have the two-page spread, and this was where the pagination got thrown off because somehow this wound up as not a two-page spread, so we had to go back and fix it by adding that previous page. Um, And here, I think my only direction, and in fact, I will look at the script right now. So this is pages eight and nine. What I wrote to Mirka here is, these pages consist of as many panels as you want culminating in page nine's splash page, uh, which actually wound up, I think, on page 10. Um, We're crossing decades here from the 1870s to the present. As we creep up to the 60s, however, we should take care not to make anything too modern, as we don't want it to feel like we're back in time when we get to the meat of the arc, which is the suburban stuff. But the women can be in cities, planes, seafronts, inside someone's homes, whatever, as long as we're getting across that this takes place over time. The gist of the action is to show that every time the architects go against the witches, they lose. Maybe they kill one or two along the way, but it doesn't really matter. It's a bloodbath every time. The witches are too powerful. To that end, we should see them using their powers, which is always accompanied by the color swirls or whatever. At this point, we didn't know what the magic was going to look like. Um, and it only came out really once the uh, art and color was all together. Uh, the pen- the, sorry, the inks and colors. Um, so all this stuff you see on pages eight and nine is really Mirka's invention. Um, you know, the heads on a spike. Um, I did say like, here's what everyone's magic is. I could go into it here if you want, but I, you know what? I think that's stuff that's going to be revealed in the next few issues. So you can see what everybody's secret power is here, but, um, you know, if you want to read into it, you can, some of it's clearer than other parts, uh, but you're going to get to see that in in later on in the arc. Um, the only other thing I added was the architects are all white men. Again, a little on the nose, but what are you going to do? Um, so this establishes, you know, getting to the heart of why, the why now of this is, you know, we go through this narration of we keep doing things. We, the architects, keep doing things the same way. We keep killing them. They keep coming back. And I was glad here I didn't have to explain how, reincarnation works because I wasn't sure yet. Um, But they are, for all intents and purposes, immortal, and we keep trying to kill them. Does that make sense? Um, I think, you know, I get asked in a lot of interviews about showing sympathy for the devil. um, And I want to make it clear that the architects are the bad guys. (laughs) I do not side with them. They are a bunch of men trying to kill and control women. I think they are terrible guys. Um, As the writer of this, I do need to understand where they're coming from. And I don't, it really bothers me when uh, characters don't have senses of humor. And so I think the fact that these guys that, you know, Aaron makes jokes or he has a glib way of talking and that we get the reason that they're doing this, um, I think that makes people think that I either intend sympathy for them or that the reader should relate to them in some way and I'm here to tell you you should not (laughs) they are monsters they are terrible people Um, we wind up the flashback stuff in New Orleans 2005 during Hurricane Katrina and this was a thing uh, that actually came from Molly Um, she suggested that you know this culminate in some kind of national event you know because this is about the history of witches in America or this, these, this coven has been together since, you know, before there was an America, but since colonial times, if not before, um, that we should culminate in some kind of event that, that rocked America. And we threw around a lot of ideas here, um, including, um, you know, the white supremacist march was one that we had talked about. Ultimately, we landed on the idea of a... a natural disaster and Katrina made the most sense for us um, because witches are so related to natural events and to the earth and all of that Um, and so that when stuff when things came to a head in the violence between the architects and this coven, it made sense to us that there would be huge natural ramifications. Uh, And so that's where we landed. And then what also came out of those conversations a little earlier on was that um, Aaron's family had been part of the architects and instrumental part of the architects since they were around, since the very beginning. Um, So the idea that enslaving Izzy is a personal vendetta for him. Um, At first, I really resisted that. I liked the idea that, you know, I I thought it was too neat. I thought it was too cute. Um, I liked the idea that um, it was just a random group of guys every time. And this was before they were even called the architects. It was just sort of a group of men who wanted to kill these witches because they were threatened by them. Um, Ultimately, I think the notion that Aaron is taking a personal revenge on Izzy deepens the story. Um, it makes him not quite so clever. It makes him, uh, a more complicated character. And it, I think ultimately it's what makes him sloppy. Uh, and that's something you're going to get to see unfold later on. Uh, so then we have this worst kind of scene in a comic book where it's just a bunch of people standing around talking. Um, so Aaron lays out his plan. Um, I, again, I really resisted him saying it's time for our vengeance, for my vengeance. But I do think it works here. Um, I want to hint that he has this backstory where he went away and he did a lot of studying and about how to beat the witches. And again, that stuff we're gonna see play out in later issues. Um, I do. Ha- it was always in from the beginning. I have him say it's time for a disruption. Because the worst thing to me is these dudes who are like, I'm a disruptor. Every time I hear someone say that, I'm like, oh, you're, you're a villain. You're a terrible person. <laughs> People do not, ugh, stop calling yourselves disruptors. Um, and so for him to say that uh, painted him in my mind as the worst kind of villain at all, a smug white guy. Um, and then the last line on this page, on page 11, a willing kiss from a mortal pure, is a literal quote from Bewitched. <clears throat> it's from a season three episode of Bewitched uh, in which evil Samantha, also played by Elizabeth Montgomery, sends Darren uh, away. And then Darren has to well, uh, rescue his wife who doesn't know who she is anymore. And the key to it is a willing kiss uh, from a mortal pure. Uh, and so Darren becomes that mortal pure, and it's actually a very sweet love story that they play out in this season three episode of Bewitched uh, called The Crone of Cotter, which is, of course, a reference to Macbeth, the best witch- wishes of all. Um, I should say the best witches of all. Um, and so that willing kiss is what breaks the spell on Samantha, and she, they get she remembers who she is and all that. Um, go look it up. That episode is on YouTube, and it's great. Um, we, or I... Turned that around and made a willing kiss from Immortal Pure the key to enslaving Izzy and the other witches. Um, it's something that, uh, and now we're on page 12, it's something that uh, Aaron discovered in his time away or whatever it is. Um, and not only did he s- discover these sort of rules of magic. As you see, he says, we don't need to wave magic wands around. By the way, I like when people casually refer to magic stuff. Like, I love Harry Potter and all, but they're so precious about their magic. Like, I love the idea of throwing away the ideas of magic as if they are fact and everyday. Like, yeah, yeah, we don't need to wave magic wands around. Let's not make a scene. (laughs) Um, And he refers to this nuclear bomb that they have. And again, that's something you're going to see pay off in issue two. It's a lot of setup in this issue. The The first issue of a comic book like a pilot for a TV show has to do so much work. Um, now we get this black page where it says three years later. Uh, two things about this. This was a page we had to insert to preserve the layout of the comic um, because the next page to me was always a reveal. Uh, it's the nine panel grid with Izzy in, in, in the bathroom mirror. Um, and if it had followed right Uh, directly facing the nuclear bomb, it wouldn't have had the same effect. It's very hard to do horror in comics uh, because you don't get jump scares and things like that, but you do get page turns. And I think those page turns are precious and they should be used for storytelling. So originally the three years later appeared uh, on that nine panel grid, but when we decided to add a black page, uh, I said we should just put the words on that. Also, I wish I had said 13 years later, because I wanted this to take place in 2018, um, so right now it takes place sometime between 2005 and today, um, and I'll I'll sort of work that out as we go, as we go deeper into the book, um, deeper into the series rather. But like, presume that time has passed while Aaron was away. He says when he was 21, he saw his father killed, or 20 years old, he saw his father killed. Time passed after that, and then a few years after that, so I think we can be caught up to now for anyone who is keeping track, and I've seen a few of you keeping track on Twitter. Uh, Okay, this nine-panel grid, which appears on page 12? Who even knows anymore? Okay, it's page 12. The nine-panel grid that appears on page 12 was the very first image I thought of for this book. Um, I thought the idea of a woman who doesn't know she is this incredibly powerful witch Um, getting ready for her day, putting on makeup, doing her hair, um, and doing it not to please herself but to please her husband uh, was an incredibly evocative image to me or series of images to me. Um, And the way that Mirka drew it and the way that Marissa colored it was even better than I could have imagined. I mean, there it has this kind of strange normality to it um, that is exactly what I was looking for in this book, what I was exa- looking for th- for these characters, uh, for the tone of this thing. Um, to me, this page sells the book. Um, I also love, and and you know, I'll mention this as we go forward too, America's not just an, an incredible artist, but she's an incredible designer. And something I never thought about until working with her was the clothing design of characters in books. And you look at uh, what Izzy's wearing at the bottom of this page. And I think it was the first thing that Mirka came up with. And it's absolutely a perfect outfit for a suburban housewife. Turn the page. Um, to me, the, this page reads too loud. Um, I had a lot of exchanges with the editors about what should go in here. And what I really wanted was just big panels of Izzy very much alone and, you know, feeling very small within these big panels. Um, I did get from Ryder, from Jen, from a couple of other readers, uh, Matt Gorley and Amanda Lund were also terrific um, readers on this and had great feedback for me. And a lot of Amanda's... Feedback um, actually appears in like she had great ideas that I absolutely stole and put in later issues. uh, So I'll try to remember to credit her with those. Um, But Molly ultimately felt that we needed to be a little more situated uh, now that we're in the suburbs. Like it was all fine and good to have that nine panel bathroom grid. Uh, be a little bit jarring, but when we get to Izzy and her house, we need to start to set the scene a little more and tell our, tell the reader that where we are and and just ground them a little bit. And so that's where the radio um, announcement came from. We plant the idea of the fires, which otherwise you wouldn't have seen for a couple of pages. Um, I don't think I got to say the name of, I did say they're in Morning Glory Circle, which is where uh, uh, Bewitch took place. Um, I don't think I got to say the name of the actual town where they live, which is Desert Canyon. Oh, that's right at the top. Um, all the way from Westport to Desert Canyon. Westport, I think, is from Charmed. It's from another witch thing. And Desert Canyon, I chose because the initials are DC, and I was sucking up to the bosses. Because at some point, I wanted to have some character refer to Desert Canyon as DC and say, everything is awesome at DC. Uh, but I it never felt natural, so it does not appear in any issue. <laughs> um... And then the last panel here, with Izzy saying all the men abandoned us, really speaks to who she is now in this weird brainwashed suburbia. All she thinks about is her husband and the other men. Uh, and then we get to meet the other characters. Um, originally, so so Nadia says architecture waits for no man. This is on the next page, uh, page 13, or page 13, f- page 13. Um Originally, they were in advertising because, again, it was closer to Bewitched. It was also sort of a Mad Men riff. Um, I feel like every good-looking guy was in advertising in the 60s. Is that wrong? Every good-looking guy and uh, Darren from Bewitched, Dick Sargent, Dick York, both of them. I assume they had the same job when they were playing the same character. Um, But anyway, all of this, um, all the dialogue on this page is all very light. We're re-establishing all the characters. Um, there's a reference to the Moorhead account, which is, of course, a reference to Agnes Moorhead, who played Andorra on Bewitched. Um, but it's mostly about how, you know, this is who we are now. This is how we see ourselves. Um, everything is in relation to our husbands. Um, and, and like Becky even has the line, Bradley doesn't tell you any more than any of our men tell us about work. It's not our business. So they've been really pushed down. Um, Izzy talks about, in this very last panel on this page, I'm too excited to share about my day as soon as he gets home. I call it the daily download. It makes him laugh. Um, That is what my wife calls it when she tells me about her day, and I put that in for her. I hope she is not embarrassed about it. Um, And then we have this bit about the state fair. Again, I was just sort of uh, looking—turn the page. I was just sort of looking for um, 50s and 60s sort of classic Americana, uh, and that's what the state fair seems to me. Uh, To be, you know, Damina talks about funnel cake and cola. This all should feel very outside of time and very strange. Um, And then, of course, we establish Izzy saying, don't be silly, girls. The fires are still dangerous. We're not going anywhere. And we get to see the fires surrounding the town, and those are the fires that are keeping them in place. Uh, The nature of those fires is something that we will learn about in future issues. Uh, And I I love the way that these are colored. Um, you know, it, that felt like the We're Not Going Anywhere panel felt like such a melancholy feel to me. It had such a melancholy uh, uh, feel. And then the way Marissa colored it um, absolutely hits that home. Like after seeing the art for that, that panel became very important to me. Uh, and is something it became something I wanted to explore more, more fully. So we'll get to see that more in issue three. Uh, and then, you know, we get the women at home. This is what their life is like. Uh, Nadia talking about baking a cake. That is, of course, as I said, a reference to Nadia Hussein from Great British Bake Off. Um, in, on panel three on this page, we get this great warped effect um, as Izzy dusts the uh, bureau here or the shelves, whatever it is, um, And a lot of you I've seen on Twitter have already guessed what is going on there. And I'm glad you did. You know, we didn't try to hide it. But for those of you who didn't, I won't reveal it here. And I'm excited for you to see where it goes. It actually doesn't pay off until the second story arc, uh, which uh, I'm working on now. I should really be working on right now instead of doing this. Um, Okay, so more about cakes, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we also get uh, this scritch, scritch sound effect uh, when... We're having the sort of uh, woozy uh, visual effect. And that scritch-scritch, uh, again, was a late addition, but something that we really needed to motivate some action in issue two. Um, okay, what is this? A lot more talk about uh, baking and what that all means. Uh, in panel two here, uh, Nadia, by way of exit, says, Ladies, you've put me in a mind to try my hand at some cardamombalar. That was, again, for my wife and my friend Sarah Watkins, uh, who became obsessed with making this Swedish pastry, which is really hard to make. uh, But they have both tried their hands at it and they came out great. But I put that in uh, as sort of a late addition as a a little shout out to them. Um, And then let's see what else. Uh, You know, here I really just wanted to establish the dynamic among the women. Mabel is a character who I liked. I think she's kind of a downer character and I like that that was a different flavor for the rest of the women, the rest of the housewives who are all very upbeat, um, at least in this first issue. Uh, I like that they sneak out. I like that they, you know, go out to this big tree to uh, smoke cigarettes. Um, You know, I think we're going to reveal some things about how much they are sneaking around later. Uh, we also established that Demina is Mabel's stepdaughter, um, and which means that whoever Mabel's husband is, is her father, or at least that's what they have all been brainwashed to understand. Um, this cat, as, has, as some of you have asked me on Twitter, um, is a very fat cat. Becky points out that this animal is heavy and that she's a chunky thing and that Becky thought she was a coyote when she saw her in the yard. And Demina calls her my tubby. Uh, this cat is named Margot, which is the name of Matt Gorley and Amanda Lund's cat. Uh, I originally had it a different name because I thought I was going to kill this cat, but I wound up really loving Margot, and so I kept the name. So, Margot, I will tell you right now, gets to live throughout this whole series uh, 100 issues. Nothing will happen to Margot because I love her. Um, I do love on the next page that Mabel says she isn't good for much more other than lazing, escaping and being real fat. Um, and I did want to put in, look, subtext is our friend. Uh, I don't know if this is too on the nose. Tell me if it is. But I like it um, where, you know, she did, we, they talk about her not wanting to be fenced in. She doesn't want to be kept, this cat. Um, obviously, that speaks to where the story is going uh, and these women uh, and their lives. Uh, and then, of course, we get this great visual of the lighter exploding when Becky tries to light her cigarette, sort of echoing her fire powers that we saw in the first couple pages. Um, and they all sort of laugh it off. Um, and, and weirdly, this page had some of the most dialogue rewrites. Um, Some of it came down to how it was drawn, and we didn't want to mess with it because we loved the way it looked. So I had to move a lot of dialogue around. I had to cut a lot out until, like, we had everybody sort of – there was a beat of everyone laughing when that happened. Um, I think what we wound up with works. I think you get the feel for how these women feel about each other, which was really all that was important to me there. Um, And then we turn the page, and we get Izzy alone again for these two pages uh, and this was, um, again, this was something that was sort of there from the very beginning. Um, oh, by the way, uh, Mabel, saying thanks for the swizzle, Izzy. Uh, swizzle is a le- word I learned from Amanda Lund, who I go to for all of my 50s housewife talk. Uh, she has a great show on Earwolf and Stitcher Premium called um, something woman. The Complete Woman. Uh, And she also, it's a whole series. It's the complete housewife, I think, and the complete woman and the complete marriage or something. Uh, But it's so good. And I suggest people go listen to it. And I listened to a lot of it as I was writing this and talked to Amanda uh, a lot about, you know, what goes in here. I hope Amanda gets to play Mabel in the TV show. Wouldn't that be great? She's so cheery. And then she'd just (laughs) get to be this sourpuss. It would be a lot of fun. Are you listening, Hollywood? Um, I love that on this page, uh, Izzy comes in and sees two glasses out and one tray with a few crumbs on it and says this is a disaster area. Um, That was it was stupidly important to me. Like, I felt like this should speak to her priorities. Um, And then, of course, breaking the glass. This should be like a real high-tension moment because if she picks up the glass and she bleeds, then her powers presumably will be unlocked. Um, Her saying, darn it, darn it, is a direct reference to um, writer and all-around lovely guy Hart Hansen who is the most just, like, affable and aw shucksy guy on Twitter. And when someone, like a celebrity or someone, dies, or even someone he knows or worked with, he will tweet, Darn, darn, darn. And I find it so charming. Uh, So I gave Izzy that, and I think she actually does it a few times. So we see her bending down to pick up the glass, which is when the phone rings. Um, Savvy readers will understand that this is all orchestrated. It's not a mistake that her husband rang, immediately when that glass was broken, so she wouldn't uh, touch it, or she wouldn't, you know, she'd be more careful when picking it up. Um, And then I really like these silent, uh, or almost silent panels on this penultimate page um, of her cleaning up the glass and sort of going through her day, talking to herself. um, You know, I think we get a good feel for what her life is now and how very, very different it is from what we saw in the first 10 pages. that last line, that mirror, mirror on the wall, was a very late addition um, because we needed something there for her to get interrupted. <laughs> um, and it's hard, like, it's the kind of thing that would play so well uh, in a different medium, in a medium where people got to move around. You know, we wouldn't have to have her say the dialogue. She would just look in the mirror and fix her hair uh, and then be interrupted. But here, we she needs to be saying something in order to be interrupted. Uh, And these are the weird technical things you get from writing comics. And then, of course, the final page is a splash page. Uh, We reveal, hi, honey, I'm home. Uh, Aaron is her husband, and he calls back to the willing kiss. Um, Originally, I had established that Aaron was her husband much earlier on, um, and we decided that that would make, and I think it was Molly's idea to uh, make that the final page reveal. Um, You'll also see, like, I have a... Way of reading and writing comics that I really like, you're going to see in, I think, almost every issue. I start with a splash page and I end with a splash page. Um, And while this one doesn't start with a splash page, it has the feel of one. You know, we get a lot of action very quickly, uh, sort of bigger panels um, and all of that. Um, it's, It's just a mode of storytelling I like. I really like for that last page to hit hard and be a cliffhanger, so hopefully you want to jump in for the next one. I will say this, those next issue blurbs, um, this one says the architects continue their campaign of Insidious Manipulation. I sent that to Molly as a joke, and now it is in a comic book, <laughs> and I wish I, I wish it was not. It is so stupid, uh, but here we are. Um, obviously, the title of this story arc, Bewildered and Bothered, is a reference to uh, the song Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, Um, and, and, you know, by taking out bewitched, I think we pretty much tell you exactly what's going on in this sixties, uh, milieu. That was a lot of talking. Thank you. If you made it through any of this, um, I, I, hope it was illuminating for you. Um, I hope it was an interesting look inside the process. I'm sure there's plenty that I forgot. I'm sure I said plenty that didn't need saying, um, but we're gonna try this, and uh, I'd be really curious to hear uh, if you listen to it and if you enjoyed reading along uh, with the commentary, if you like this kind of thing, we're gonna do it for the rest of these issues. As I said, we're gonna uh, eventually move it into its own podcast feed, so you don't have to yell at me about that., um, but also let me know, like what comics would you like to see? I think we're mostly gonna do new comics as they come out. But if there are writers, you would love to hear about how they go, about creating their their work, let me know who they are and tag them into Twitter and maybe we can get that going. Um, I've already had a lot of interest already. Um, Hexwives issue one you have in your hands. Issue two is out the 28th of November. Please pick it up from your local comic shop. Um, things are really heating up in this book. Um, issue two, we're very happy with it has a couple of scenes that were terrifying for me to write and I'll talk about that next podcast um, it also has uh, some stuff that I don't love and I'll talk about that too um, and then issue three and four which I'm I have seen the finished art for now I think are the best ones we've done issue four is going to knock you on your ass thanks for listening Forever Dog. this has been a forever dog production executive produced by Brett Boehm Joe Cilio and Alex Ramsey